I invite you to join me in Hebrews 9, if you're not there already. Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 14. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we rejoice in the hope of the gospel. Even as we have just proclaimed in song, so now our hearts confess in prayer, hallelujah, what a savior. Is there any other response that we can utter after meditating on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on the hope that we have of resurrection? Hallelujah, what a savior. Heavenly Father, this morning we rejoice with the Galbraiths, their burden, how you have led them, the opportunities that you have give, given to them. We pray that you would continue to bring in their support, continue to bless their ministry as they finish up deputation, as they go and they get established there in Britain. We pray that you would bless them, that you would give them those connections. And Heavenly Father, we pray that even as we together in here proclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior, that we would go from here and proclaim to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our family, to our friends, the good news of this Savior, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would have a burden to do the work of a missionary here in Altoona, Iowa, that the gospel may go forth, that you may be glorified. Heavenly Father, we pray in this hour as we look at this passage, that we would be reminded of our glorious Savior. Heavenly Father, that if the truths of the gospel have grown cold to us, that they would be reignited again this morning. That that passion would be restored. That we would rejoice in the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I've talked often of the ministry that Chris and I were involved in before we uh, moved here to Altoona. In fact, one time when I was down in the youth room, uh, I'd given a, a, an illustration and afterwards one of the youth kids came up to me and they said, why do you talk so much about Indianapolis? Because we loved our time there. The Lord was, was good to us. We enjoyed that and it played such a, a role in who we are today, and my wife and I. As we think back to that time, that neighborhood in which we were in, it was not a neighborhood that was like Altoona. I was just recently this week looking up the statistics, uh, demographics of Altoona. Do you know that Altoona, Iowa is 98% white? 98%. That was not the neighborhood that we were in in Indianapolis. It was on the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder. Uh, there were not lots of nice things in the neighborhood. It was, a, it was a neighborhood stricken with poverty and violence. And yet, it was a neighborhood that needed the gospel of Jesus Christ, just as we do here in Altoona, Iowa. But in the midst of this neighborhood in which we were in, it was called the near east side of Indianapolis, and it covered approximately 20 square blocks. There was about 30,000 people in that area. And in this whole larger neighborhood of the near east side of Indianapolis, there were two specific neighborhoods that stood out. These two neighborhoods were called, one of them was called Woodruff Place, and one of them was called Irvington. 
They were nice neighborhoods in the midst of chaos. And when you were driving through, they stood out starkly. You could not miss it. Woodruff Place had beautiful fountains and historic, well-kept mansions. It was beautiful. I don't know if you've ever uh, been to Charleston, South Carolina, or if you ever heard of Rainbow Row, uh, right there along the, the battery, these beautifully painted houses, all these different colors. That's kind of how Woodruff Place is. They're just blues and greens and, and purples and, and yellows, just beautiful houses, mansions with porches that wrap all the way around, Victorian houses. It's gorgeous. Woodruff Place had beautiful yards, pristine streets lined with street lamps and beautiful trees, almost like the scene, just a scene out of a movie. Think of the perfect neighborhood. Woodruff Place was Indianapolis's first planned residential suburb. It's included in the National Register of Historic Places, and Indianapolis has spent a lot of money to keep that neighborhood historic and nice and to keep it up. But Woodruff Place, uh, it's a neighborhood, it spans about three blocks, but it's, it's strictly residential. It's just houses and streets. A little more to the east, there's a few streets called Irvington. Unlike Woodruff Place, Irvington is also historical. Like Woodruff Place, Irvington is also historical. But unlike Woodruff Place, Irvington is more of a little city in and of itself. It's not just residential. In fact, there's a very nice Starbucks there that I would often go to to study. Chris and I would often go to this Starbucks. In Irvington, uh, there was a nice breakfast place that Chris and I would often go to. In Irvington, there was a beautiful pizza place called Giacomo's, the best, best pizza ever. We loved that place. Irvington was the type of place that you would go and you'd park your car and you'd walk around. You could do a little shopping. You could stop and get your coffee. You could, you could go get a slice of pizza. It was the type of neighborhood that Krista, uh, her and one of the other girls that we were working with, Kristen, they would drive down to Irvington, get out, and they would run. That's where they would do their exercise. They would run out on the streets. That is not something that you would do in the neighborhood in which we lived. It was a nice neighborhood. In both Irvington and Woodruff Place, they stood out starkly against their surroundings. They were fully surrounded by streets that were engulfed in poverty and violence. And frankly, as you drove through the near east side of Indianapolis, as you came by those streets or went through those streets, it was almost shocking. You could not miss it. There's something different here. Similarly, in our passage this morning, the realities of the old covenant tabernacle and the worship that we saw last week in Hebrews 9, 1-10, and with all of its weaknesses laid bare, it contrasts starkly with Jesus and his ministry that we will see this week. You might remember last week as we looked at uh, Hebrews 9, 1-10, we took a tour of the tabernacle. We saw the layout of the tabernacle, the holy place and the most holy place. We saw the furniture that was in there and the roles that it played and what it represented. We, we paused to look at the priests and, and what role did they have. And, and in doing that, we saw the weakness of it all, did we not? The priests that have to go back year after year after year, the limited access to the, whole, the most holy place. One priest, once a year, with the blood of bulls and goats. 
Here in our passage this morning, the author of Hebrews masterfully uses this contrast between verses 1 to 10 in the tabernacle and the old covenant and verses 11 to 14 and the ministry of Jesus Christ. From the hopelessness of the tired repetition of the Mosaic Covenant to rejoicing in Jesus Christ and the hope of his salvation. So this morning, by the grace of God, we'll see a better tabernacle and a better sacrifice. First thing we see this morning in verse 11 is a better tabernacle. That's where the author of Hebrews started last week. In verses 1 to 10, he started with the tabernacle. What, what is this tabernacle? What did it look like? What was in there? What went on in there? Now, as you move to verse 11, he takes us back also to the tabernacle, but to a better tabernacle. In fact, verse 11 starts with the word, but. But. As you read it in context here, I really want to start back in, in verse uh, Really, we'll start in verse 6. Now, now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone. This is the most holy place, once a year. Not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, but the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshy ordinances imposed upon the time of the Reformation, we very clearly see the, the weakness of this old covenant. Then you come to verse 11. But Christ. Two beautiful words. But Christ. Christ came as high priest. It's a comparison here to the old covenants with its tabernacle and its priesthood. It fell woefully short of salvation. It did not give access. In fact, one of the things that the Holy Spirit was testifying to, as verse 8 tells us, in the fact that the priest had to go in once a year, repeatedly, is that there was something better coming. This morning we see that better thing is in Jesus Christ. But Christ. Christ came as. That little word as, that came as, indicates that Christ came with purpose. This is not something that Christ came to, and then as he's growing up, he realized, you know, I could do this. No, he came with purpose. He took on flesh. He came with purpose. He came as a high priest. That's explained in, in, verse, in chapter 8, verses 1 to 6, as we walked through several weeks ago. He came as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Eternal, called by God, set apart, sent with purpose. He came as a high priest of the good things to come. What are these good things to come? It's a very broad statement what we see in chapter 8 verses 7 to 13 the good things to come is to bring about and fulfill all of God's plans and purposes specifically the new covenant that is promised to Israel and to Judah 
Really what you see here in this first line of verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, is you see the summation of chapter 8. That is what chapter 8 is pointing to. The first six verses of chapter 8, verses 1 to 6, talks about Christ as high priest. The last few verses of chapter 8, verses 7 to 13, talk about the new covenant. And what you see here in this first line of verse 11 is that Jesus Christ fulfills all of that. He is this high priest, and he has come with the good things to come. To bring about, to fulfill all of God's promises. How does he do this? The type of his ministry is a high priestly ministry. Fulfilling all of God's promises. But, but how does he do this? That's what we see in the second part of verse 11. He does this because he is in the very presence of God himself. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Note here that the author of Hebrews is not putting down the old tabernacle. The physical tabernacle. He's not saying that that was bad. In fact, he says greater and more perfect. If we saw last week that the tabernacle was exactly as God had planned it. It is God himself who gave instructions for that tabernacle. It is God himself who equipped Bezalel and Oholiab to build it. In fact, the tabernacle was, more than anything else on earth has ever been, probably could be said was more perfect than anything else. It was God's plan. It was something that God equipped men to build. And yet even that, there is something better. A greater and more perfect tabernacle. As great as that tabernacle was, as specific as it was to God's plan, it was but a shadow made by hands to point to something greater. Something where we will have more access to God. That tabernacle testifies that God wants us to come into his presence. He wants to give us access. And yet that tabernacle also pointed to the fact that we are sinners. And that our sin separates us from God and we cannot have access. But in that tabernacle, it also testifies that God is making a way through the shedding of blood. As that blood is sprinkled by the high priest on the mercy seat, granting access once a year. It testifies that something greater is coming. And brothers and sisters, that is where Jesus Christ is. He is in the greater and the more perfect tabernacle. The tabernacle that is not made with hands. Not of this creation. The tabernacle that goes back to creation itself, created by God. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. This is not man's doing, this is God's doing. This is where God dwells. Now don't get caught up here on the picture of a tabernacle. The idea of tabernacle here is simply the, where God dwells. It's, it's not really a tabernacle at all, but it is the very presence of God fully unveiled in heaven. I mean, even when you think back to the tabernacle itself, the physical tabernacle here on earth, the tabernacle is just a shadow of something to come. 
even as that high priest had access to God, even there, as he's in that Holy of Holies, God had to veil himself. He could not, that priest could not look on the unveiled presence of God or he would die. Man cannot see God. And Jesus stands before the unveiled presence of God. Full access. So Jesus' ministry is the ministry of a high priest. He is a better high priest, for he is eternal. For he is commissioned and sent by God himself with this purpose. And he is a high priest who serves in a better location in the very unveiled presence of God in the throne room of heaven itself, seated at the right hand of God with authority. So we see that our great high priest is in a better tabernacle, just here in the very first verse. But then in verses 12 to 14, we see that he offers a better sacrifice. He's in the presence of God in the greater and the more perfect tabernacle, this tabernacle that's not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He's in heaven itself, not with the blood of goats and calves. But with his own blood, he entered the most holy place. Not with the blood of bulls and goats. Again, you see in verse 2 of chapter 8, Jesus Christ is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. This true tabernacle. And he enters not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. He enters a better tabernacle and he enters with a better sacrifice. Here, Jesus Christ and his sacrifice is contrasted with the ineffective and repeated nature of the old covenant sacrifices. He entered by his own blood. In fact, as you go back, And look at verse 7 of chapter 9. Into the second part of the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood. Not without blood. Verse 3 of chapter 8. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. To come into the presence of God, you must bring a sacrifice. The high priest under the old covenant brings a sacrifice of the blood of bulls and goats sprinkled on the mercy seat. But Jesus Christ comes with a better sacrifice. The sacrifice of his own blood. He enters a better tabernacle with a better offering. A sacrifice must be offered as we see there in chapter 9 verse 7 and chapter 8 verse 3. A sacrifice must be offered. Sin must be dealt with, for God is just. And Jesus brings a better sacrifice. With his own blood, he entered the most holy place once and for all. That is what this better sacrifice accomplishes for us. 
that is not a sacrifice that needs to be repeated. That's what we saw in verses 1 to 10. The repeated nature of this as the high priest has to go back year after year after year, once a year. And because of the limited access and limited efficaciousness and limited nature of the old covenant, the high priest, he had to go back year and year again with more blood because the people have done more sins for they are sinners. Blood of bull and ghosts do not, does not change them. But Jesus offers, enters with his own blood, the most holy place, this tabernacle not made with hands in heaven itself once for all. As he declared on the cross, it is finished. Once for all. And what does he accomplish? He has obtained eternal redemption. The idea of redemption is to buy back, to fully satisfy. Eternal redemption is fully paid. Your creditors have no more claim over you, and your receipt sits at the right hand of the throne of God. It's a better sacrifice, and he's obtained a better Eternal redemption. His eternal sacrifice obtains an eternal salvation. In fact, note the focus on that phrase eternal. That's a word that we've been focusing on for several chapters now. Back when we were talking about Melchizedek in chapter 7. What is one of the unique things that that made Melchizedek and and Jesus Christ at the order of Melchizedek, what is one of the things that made them stand out? It is the fact that their ministry is an eternal ministry. That it has no end because they have no end. For Jesus has conquered death. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and because he is eternal, your salvation is eternal. Any accusation brought against you for the rest of eternity, your eternal Savior will stand up and say, that has been covered. I have cared for that. I died. My blood has covered his sins. There is no accusation that can be brought against you for your Savior is eternal. His ministry is eternal. His sacrifice is eternal. And your sins are covered eternally. He has given you an eternal redemption through his blood that he has offered. Verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies uh, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, the idea here is if, if the old covenant sacrifices, if they cleanse the outside, They they weren't ineffective. It is something set up by God. They cleansed the flesh, the outside, but they could do nothing about the inside. But if the blood of bulls and goats accomplish something, how much more does the blood of the Son of God, who took on flesh, 
and shed his blood for you, how much more shall the blood of Christ, a better offering, infinitely more valuable and infinitely more effective, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, it's kind of an odd phrase that catches our attention there, through the eternal spirit. What does that mean? A few years ago at Christmas, we uh, had a series called the Triune God of Christmas. And you may remember we walked through the, each member of the Godhead and their role in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Their role in the earthly ministry of Christ. And we saw in that series that the role of the Holy Spirit was to prepare the way but then also to sustain, to equip, to fill Jesus Christ in his ministry. You see that foretold in Isaiah 11, verses 2 to 3. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. The Spirit's role is foretold. And then you see in John 3, 34, Matthew 12, 28, Luke 4, 14 to 20, and many other verses, that role fulfilled as the Spirit is the one who fills and strengthens and leads Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. This is the role of the Holy Spirit in our redemption. He supported and upheld Jesus in his incarnation. And again, you have this word, eternal. You have Jesus Christ, your eternal high priest, upheld and supported through his ministry by the eternal spirit. I mean, I think the author of Hebrews wants us to really focus on that word eternal. He wants you to get that. Your eternal hope is tied to your eternal Savior. He did this through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot, sinless, Willingly, unlike the bulls and goats who had no idea what they were doing, who did not volunteer, Jesus Christ came willingly. He came willingly. He knew your sin and my sin, the depth of our betrayal. And yet he came willingly for you and for me. He shed his blood willingly that we might be saved. He offered himself willingly without spot to God. Note there again that phrase to God doesn't say to Satan. He did not pay a ransom to Satan to save you. But it is your sin against a holy God that condemns you. An eternal God. And the only way to have eternal redemption is through an eternal Savior. He offered himself without spot to God. Now note this. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Cleanse your conscience. In the first ten verses, that is the very thing that the blood of bulls and goats could not do. It could take care of 
your outside sins. It could make you look good on the outside, but it could not cleanse your conscience. It could not change you from the inside out. Is that not the promise of what the new covenant is? Salvation from the inside out. Salvation that God himself accomplishes. I will do this. I will change you. This eternal salvation is a salvation that is not just sanctifying for the purifying of the flesh, as verse 13 says, but it cleanses your conscience from dead works. Cleanses your conscience. Full forgiveness, both inside and out. And notice that last phrase. To serve the living God. To serve the living God. You are saved to a purpose. There's another passage where that phrase we see. It's in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 10. I really want to, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 to 10, because it's so powerful and it fits so well with this passage. It says this, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner... Hold on, I'm in verse three, chapter 3. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, there we see those two words again, just as we do here, but Christ, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In the heavenly places. Not in this earthly tabernacle with limited access, but in the heavenly places. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's what you see here again, to serve the living God. You are saved to serve. Saved to glorify God. To lift his name. To testify to what God has done. The drive west from Des Moines can be grueling. There's not a lot to look at as you cross the plains of western Iowa, Nebraska, and eastern Colorado. But eventually, eventually something stands out in the distance. At first, it's just faint. It's just a, a different shade of blue in the distance beyond, between the sky and the ground. But as you get closer, the shade of blue takes the form of the unmistakable front range of the Rocky Mountains. 
The closer you get, the more your heart is filled with awe and anticipation against the flat, brown, monotonous plains before them. The Rocky Mountains stand out as majestic and powerful. Can there be anything more glorious, anything more beautiful? As believers, sights like this cause us to rejoice in the God who formed those mountains and to worship his name. Our passage this morning in Hebrews 9 is like that drive west. Against the endless monotony of the old covenant and the temple sacrifices, Jesus stands out majestically and powerfully. It is the contrast of Hebrews 9, 11 to 14 against Hebrews 9, 1 to 10 that makes the beauty of our salvation shine forth all the more. It causes our hearts to soar. And Lord willing, our voices to rise in unison to God be the glory. As you come to the end of these few short verses, Hebrews 9, 11 to 14, we've looked at Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and the eternal redemption that is ours in him. What application is there for us this morning? As we look at this majestic salvation, his glorious salvation, I think the first one is this, believer, maybe your worship has grown cold. You know the truth. You know the gospel. You know it by heart. And yet, it no longer moves you as it once did. Maybe your devotions, that personal time you have with the Lord, as you sit down, you open the word of God, maybe they've lost their their intimate excitement that they once had. Maybe it's become a chore. Maybe you've stopped altogether. Brothers and sisters, may this passage pick you up, point you to Christ, and fill you with renewed vigor. Look to Jesus Christ your majestic Savior. Look at the glory of your salvation in him. Your devotions are not a chore. Prayer is not a chore. Discipleship is not a chore. Evangelism is not a chore. It is a privilege for those of us who are in Christ. I mean, going back to the the illustration of the Rocky Mountains, can, can you imagine living at the foot of the Rocky Mountains and yet the view, becoming, becoming so accustomed to the view of that majestic beauty that you just never look up. You just don't care. It doesn't move you. And so you just ignore it. And can you imagine living right on the edge of such beauty? And when people come to visit, you don't point it out. Look at those beautiful mountains. But you just live as if they're not there. It seems foolish to us. And yet, how much more beautiful is the gospel? How much more of a privilege to be in Christ, and what a tragedy to live oblivious to this privilege. What a tragedy to hold it inside and not to shout it from the rooftops, look to Jesus Christ! To my eternal salvation! 
to what he has done for me and for you. May the Lord wake us up from our slumber this morning. Fill us with passion and with evangelistic zeal. Maybe this morning as we have looked at what Jesus has done for us through the shedding of his blood for your sin, maybe you've been convicted of that specific sin to which you cling, that one to which you continually return. Against the renewed vision of the beauty of the gospel, your sin, maybe this morning, hopefully has lost its luster. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if that is you this morning, fall down before your God. Confess your sin with a contrite heart and find forgiveness. Rejoice this morning in the cross of Christ. Rejoice in the eternal redemption that is yours in Jesus Christ. And sing a new song of forgiveness and grace and mercy with renewed vigor. May this be a passage that is a wake-up call to us. You remember how sweet it was when you were first saved. How precious was that time in the Word of God. How sweet to come to church and to fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. To sing of your Savior. To sit under the preaching of the Word of God. Do you remember that? Has it lost its luster? Come back. Wake up. See the glory of Jesus Christ and his cross this morning. And rejoice that that is yours. That you have hope in him. Maybe you're here this morning, and this is all new to you. Maybe you don't know this Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never placed your faith in Christ for salvation. Maybe you think that if you are good enough, at the end of time, maybe you'll stand before God, and he'll weigh your good works and your bad works, and he'll let you in because your good works are good enough. But that's not how it works. You are a sinner. You have sinned against a holy God. And your sin condemns you to hell. And there is nothing that you can do to cover your sin. There is no way that you can earn the grace of God. But against the hopelessness of the old covenant, the old covenant that proclaims that you are a sinner, the old covenant that reminds you that because of your sin you are limited, that you do not have access to God, that old covenant that testifies that you deserve to die. Against the hopelessness of the old covenant is the hope of the gospel. That you deserve to die. That blood must be shed, but that Jesus died for your sins. And he stands now and he calls you to respond. To believe that Jesus is the sinless Son of God. And that you, as a sinner, 
stand justly condemned, but that Jesus died for your sin. He paid your penalty, and he offers you salvation full and free. Not by changing yourself, not by becoming better, but simply by believing. Simply by saying, I cannot save myself. And falling at the feet of Jesus Christ, confessing your sin and believing and finding forgiveness and salvation. If that is you this morning, I would encourage you to come to the front, even as we sing our closing song.